Blog Talk Radio. Head online, and this is the TS Radio Network. Our show tonight is brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit, the annual event that takes place every year in Washington, D.C., which is a big event, quite honestly. Uh, you'll meet a lot of people there, a lot of networking to do, a lot of new people to meet, and you're in good company. It is December 8th, 2020, and on one of my other shows that I produce is Tanya Hathaway. Tanya's on here with me right now. She's going to co-host tonight, and she has a voice called Tanya Talks, and what she's talking about primarily has been the state of Oklahoma and all of the corruption there, and it got around to the corruption in the Oklahoma prisons, and a lot has come out about the actions of the guards, uh, the neglect, the abuse of the prisoners, And it seems we're hearing this from all over the country about the guards being actually more of a threat than other inmates. So this is basically going to be the topic of our conversation tonight. Like I say, Tanya is co-hosting with me. Say hello, Tanya. Hi there, everybody. How are you doing? Thanks for tuning in tonight. Yes. And and I um, want to thank our our very special guest who's about to come on. Yes. Yeah, DJ Botica. And he's a guard. He was a longtime guard with a good record out in the California prison system. And he wrote a book about his experience called The Green Wall. And I've linked to it here on the show promo, also on the PPJ Gazette. I put up a promotion for the book. I have it and have read it. And it is an expose of what can happen to you when you blow the whistle. And of course, being the whistleblower show, we we talk about these things all the time, and I think one of the most curious things about it is the people you work with will turn on you for doing the right thing, and this is what happened to DJ. Um, with that said, I'm going to bring him on and let him tell you what happened, how this all started, and what happened to him as a result of blowing the whistle. DJ, welcome to the show. Thanks, Marty. Thanks, Tanya. I appreciate it. <laughs> Oh, you bet. I just finished reading the book um, today. I just I picked it up and yeah. I didn't put it down until I finished it. I uh, unfortunately had to wait till today to read it, but I'm yeah. all stirred up and very excited to to talk with you throughout this this show. Yeah. Um, and and uh, just hear how the heck you're doing and your story <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. So, DJ, why don't you? Yeah. Go ahead. Why don't you tell us? How, well, first off, give us some background on you about your career because it was quite extensive and remarkable in and of itself. And what struck me odd was here you had this stellar career. Um, you were an exemplary employee, and they turned on you. And I, this just really rankles me. But go ahead, DJ, and tell them what you did. 
and how long you did it. Well, yeah, my name is DJ Vodica. I started the Department of Corrections in uh, March of 1988. I attended an academy in California. It was a six-week academy for peace officers, which were all sworn peace officers. Shortly after I graduated the academy, uh, my first duty assignment was the, the famous Corcoran State Prison in the Central Valley, which is a level four prison and a, a SHU uh, security housing unit where the uh, indeterminate gang members will be housed and also the uh, famous uh, uh, serial killers and also Charles Manson. Um, I stayed there wow. for about four years. I stayed there for about four years, and I wanted to get out of that prison. And there was a new prison opening up down the lower desert called Calipadria State Prison. I went down there. Uh, some of us veteran officers went down there. They were recruiting for veteran officers. So we went down there to open that prison up. My first duty assignment was with the ISU Investigative Services Unit, where I became the evidence officer, where I solved uh, horrific crimes and uh, did a lot of the, I did all the crime scenes inside the prison, inside the prison. Um, shortly after that, I uh, I transferred to the famous in 1994, the famous Pelican Bay State Prison in Northern California, which is all the way up the top of California, right next to the Oregon border, which houses the most indeterminate heavy gang members throughout the state of California for every gang race there is. I got up there, and I, like, again, I ended up going right into as an evidence officer as the ISU with the goon squad, and I met a good friend of mine who was my supervisor, Joe Reynoso, who I'll talk later about in the book. So two years I was up there, and my wife was getting cabin fever. She didn't like the rain and all that. And she wanted to leave there, and I, we transferred to another prison in 1996, which was called Salinas Valley State Prison, which was the home of the Green Wall, which actually where the Green Wall started. Again, I ended up going into the ISU unit, setting up that unit for the warden at the prison at the time. So I got burned out. I got burned out. And then about November of 1998, I wanted to go to the main line and work with the line officers. Because once you're an ISU officer, you're, look, you're really looked down because we work with the internal affairs unit closely. And uh, they investigate staff. So shortly after that, I left that unit. I went to, like I said, the D yard, which is the worst yard. We had four level four yards there, housing a thousand inmates on each yard, and all of them were eighty-five percent were probably lifers, never going home. So on Thanksgiving Day, and what was Day, the ratio? What was the ratio there, DJ, of of um, you know prisoners to corrections officers? Because I think I found that quite. Oh no problem. We had we had uh, when we were fully occupied at that prison. We had probably about 5,000 inmates to about 600 prison guards. And then 600 mm-hmm. prison guards was divided up in all three watches and uh, on different days. So we were definitely outnumbered. Yep. Well, and, and none of you carried actual, you know, guns with real bullets, correct? That's correct. Our, our gun towers upstairs, uh, we had a gun tower officer oversee the whole yard. And also the housing units, they could come to the windows and oversee the yard when two or three correctional officers were on the yard, walking the yard uh, amongst these convicts and inmates. So it was like that for each prison that you worked with, correct? What's that now? It was like that for each facility that you were at. So this is the common theme. I'm just for those listeners that haven't been following, you know, this show, you know, and they're here because. You know they they know that you're on, and this is very very special. Uh, we know we have our, our regulars listening tonight, but 
we have you on tonight, and you are really the talk of the town. <laughs> you know, so I just want to make so, sure yeah, that uh, our listeners yeah, recognize that nobody carries unless you are one of those guys yeah. up at the, the very top. We, you know, overlooking. No, nobody. Yeah, exactly. And well, every prison that I worked in, and all the state prisons in California are set up that way. We always mm-hmm. uh, upstairs, and the gunners are keeping an eye on us with a lethal force just in case something happens or something happens in the yard, but that's every institution throughout the state of California. So mm-hmm. I got there on Thanksgiving, you know, I, I worked the Thanksgiving day, uh, November of uh, 1998. And uh, at that time uh, there was an alarm on the upper yard because our yards were divided with a concrete wall splitting the yards. And uh, there was a, 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 they needed extra staff on the upper yard. And I responded on the upper yard and the Lieutenant came out We can dance later, okay? <laughs> and, 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 uh, so I, I responded alarm on the upper yard, uh, which I got up there. There were several staff uh, uh, being uh, attacked by southern Hispanic inmates on the yard. There was gas being portrayed on the yard, lethal, uh, not lethal, but rubber rounds and you name it, less than lethal, because the southern Hispanics were attacking the staff. And... Uh, and then after that, I got up there. there. There was smoke and gas and all that. We laid the inmates down on the yard, and we ended up cuffing them. And uh, so, anyways, a lieutenant at that yard knew I was an evidence officer from my prior experience, and asked me if I do the crime scene. And I said, "Yeah, I do it, Lieutenant Lewis." So actually, I set up a crime scene. And then uh, shortly after that, we had several staff members uh, going out in the ambulance to the local hospitals because they were uh, uh, had lacerations and cuts on their bodies. So. Later that day, I, I wanted to take the uh, take pictures of the inmates prior to going into their cells and, and photograph them so they won't have any what kind of injuries they had on their bodies. So and this when was I was told the lieutenant, for you. this was typical, well, right? That's, that's uh, how I was trained. No, that's, that's how you I, do your investigation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. exactly. I, I was tra- trained that way because I want to make sure these guys don't have extensive injuries on them after the fact. So. Well, these prison guards were part of the Green Wall at the time, and forming it, they were pissed off at me, and they were calling me a, a rat, you inmate lover, whose side are you on? And, and you know, and I said, I'm more, this is how I do it, guys. Just, you have to listen to me. And they, they were reluctant to bring the inmates in so I can photograph them. Because what they did afterwards, Tanya and Marty, they took these inmates back to their housing unit, and they uh, they beat them up. They, uh, tuned, they really oh, beat them up in the refrigerator. And they also destroyed their property, and Shortly after that, a big investigation came down from the Sacramento, which is the high, higher headquarters with their IA unit, and they came down and started doing their investigation on the Green Wall. So if you're taking pictures of them before they go back, you've got before, and then if they beat them up after, right, they don't want you to have That's before correct. pictures because it's going to look different. Then. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. can you explain to our DJ. listeners – Go ahead. A little Go bit ahead. about the green wall and the 723, you know, just so that they can get this, you know, so they can understand, you know, the green wall a little bit more than you, Marty, and me, and others who've already read your book. Can you just explain how, how that yeah. was born, in essence? No problem. The, the green wall is because the, us officers in the Department of Corrections wear green jumpsuits. That's what our jumpsuits, what our patches on our name tags and our patches on our and our star on our chest 
We also wore green uh, pants and khaki shirts if you wanted to, but that's how they call them. They call them the 723 because the seventh letter of the alphabet is G, the 23rd is W. So they refer themselves as 723 or the GW. Several staff members ended up putting tattoos on their bodies in reflection of that as a 723. Now, you so also they're, they're actually got Go ahead, Marty. Okay, go ahead. No, that's all right. Go ahead. Your stature itself is is a bit beyond the typical stature, uh, correct? You're 6'10", 300 pounds at the time, right? You were fresh. No, you I'm had not. come from the Army, four years in the Army. Is that right? And you went in proudly, you know, as a, uh, as a corrections officer, wanting to do a great job with your career and further yourself, uh, you know, great belief in the system, you know, quite a patriot. Uh, but you you yourself were of an intimidating stature, which didn't intimidate certain lifers and whatnot. You know, you had people even laugh at you, you know, because they had nothing to, to lose as far as the inmates go. But it's kind of funny how it led to certain relationships and, uh, and you know, understanding the dynamic. But so you were not a small guy. You were not what no, typically, I'm, I'm, though, uh, anybody would mess with, and certainly not even another corrections yeah. officer, correct? Well, ta- yeah. Well, Tanya, I'm not six foot ten. I'm close to that. I'm I'm six. Well, I was six. I'm six foot five and about three twenty. Um, bald okay, headed, goatee. Um, no, that's okay. okay. I, I don't mind adding some more height on me, but yeah, I was. My, I was my sons big. are that I, tall, I so I'm thinking of them. I knew you were tall. <laughs> oh, okay. No, but. Yeah, they, um, the inmates respected me, and I respected them. You know, they knew I had to do a job, and I had a lot of respect by the inmates, but the prison guards didn't like me because I was turning against them because I was doing my job. And shortly after I did my job and took the pictures, three months later, here comes OIA, Internal Affairs, down, and they called me in for an interview. And uh, standing at our door is a powerful union, had job union stewards there waiting to go in. They go, hey, Officer Vodica, we're going to go in with you. I said, I don't need you guys. I don't need you to go in there. I, I don't need union representation. I did nothing wrong. So I went in there, and, and I was in there for about four hours going through every picture with the, the investigations team. And, and when I walked out there, I was labeled a rat, a snitch. I went, when I got on my car that night, there was three or four dead rats on my hood. Um, you know, just, you know they, they, were, they were just trying to mess with me. And then shortly after that, guys, I, um, I, I got a different job, and I went down to the vehicle sally port where the vehicles come inside the prison. I just wanted to get away for a while and uh, just get out of the limelight for being a caller rat and a snitch and watch your back. You're a dead man walking. and Every name in the book you call with these prison guards. Did you genuinely feel, did you feel fear for your life, though, at that point? Did you feel That's, fear? Yes, I did. did you take I, that yeah, seriously? I did, because, I did take it seriously. Working in a level four prison, in California, which is the highest prison in the state of California, we got three, four different levels, and and I don't know if I was going to be set up by, you know, these prison guards and uh, paying an inmate or a convict off. Hey, we take out Officer Vodica, we'll give you some dope or whatever. So yeah, I was very cautious there. So shortly after that, Tanya, I was ordered. The warden called me up to his office, and I had to go up there, and, and he wanted to know his whole knowledge about the Green Wall. And I said, Well, sir, I work with these guys. You know, I mean. Are you going to protect me? He goes, oh, Vodica, I'll protect you. Don't worry about it. I just need your report. I said, well, okay, sir. I'm, I really don't want to write it. And he goes, well, I have to order you now, Vodica. I said, okay, I'll, I'll write the report. So I ended up writing the report and giving it to him the, on Monday. And, 
And uh, sure enough, uh, he got my comp. I kept the copy for myself, and it's in the book. You know, the old reports in the book, and ended up uh, uh, thought he was going to protect me. And then two months later, down in the vehicle Sally Port, here comes those guys, a part of the Greenwall Internal Affairs ISU. They came down and quoted verbatim what was in my memorandum. The warden set me up. Wow. DJ, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that the guards would go in after your investigation and beat the crap out of the prisoners. What was the purpose of that? Why? Power. Power. It's all Mm -hmm. about power. uh, Okay. The power. The guards, these inmates and convicts were going to control our yard, so it's all about power because they had the backing from the warden. The warden, told, the warden was in charge of these guys on the green wall. That's all in the book and the deposition testimony in the back. Mm-hmm. And all the evidence right. is in the book that points to the warden. Um, it's in the very power. right. He, yeah, he said he told these prison guards go put fear and intimidation to these inmates, and you got my backing. So shortly after that, guys, shortly after that happened to me in the vehicle sally port, I, I my IA came down and said I'm, I, I lost it. I, I went berserk in the sally port, so I got a phone call. I went home that afternoon. I, I had enough. And then I got a phone call at my house by the office inspector general who works for the secretary of corrections and the governor. They wanted to come down and talk to me and interview about this green wall. So they did. They came to my house. They tape recorded me for about four hours. And then shortly after that, about two weeks later, they stormed the institution and they removed all the ISU officers out of their unit. They removed the warden from the unit. They confiscated computers, everything, you name it, anything attached to the green wall. And now I was for sure a dead man. So a good friend oh, of mine wow. who was in the book, Joe Reynoso, who was in the book, I called him, and he goes, what? We need to get you out of that prison. So he worked wonders in Sacramento. He went to the higher, higher up, right up to the governor's level. So they moved me overnight to another prison for my protection. And I didn't last but about eight months at that, that prison before I was set up again. And that was my last day in 2000 and, uh, 2002 was my last day. Okay, you know what what strikes me out is here they form this green wall, this gang. It's nothing less than a gang, and they complete with tattoos and the whole nine yards. And somehow they didn't see that they were the same as the people they were guarding. This strikes me odd. They became the thing that they were supposed to be stopping, or you know what I'm saying. And they they don't see this. No, these uh, these prison guards would go up to an inmate. I'll give you an example. They go up to a uh, an inmate cell, which I've got all the documents to support this evidence. They went up to the inmate cell, and they, uh, the guy was ready to go home, and about he'd been down for 20 years, getting ready to go home in a week. And they pull him pull him up, handcuff him to the rail. These guys, part of the green wall, would go into a cell and, and plant an inmate manufactured weapon right in front of him in his cell. Now he's looking at third strike. He's not going home. Too many Christmas. So Have you heard a, you of know, the Stanford I got someone to ask you. You guys are over-talking, huh? Uh, go ahead. Yes. We're, we're, you go right ahead. Mark, go ahead. Um, I had someone ask here if they had any kind of rehabilitation, um, anything, you know, did they have anything like that at all to work with these people, or were they just so far gone like a, they were lifers or whatever? But they didn't even try. Was there anything to write? No, yeah, Mark. Go ahead. That's a great question, Marty. When I when I started the corrections, there was no such thing as a re- rehabilitation until the mid '90s, and then they put the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation on our patches, and they started in the mid uh, 
the mid nineties, late nineties, early two thousands. And it went on for a while and they were, they had jobs for these inmates to go learn a trade, go to school, all that. But then again, after mm-hmm. shortly after that, the budget came in, the budget came in, it was all a money thing and they had to cut programs. And sure enough, that's the first thing they're going to cut. Well, but do you, where do, so, do you think there's transparency in how the money was spent? Because I mean, we're finding, you know, these, uh, you know, these private prisons, now and you know, I don't know uh, how that was in California, but we're finding that private pri- private prisons are you know running rampant throughout the country. And in Oklahoma, they're actually starting to um, be shut down. Um, but uh, where's the transparency with the money and and the programs and and where all this is going to? Did you ever, you, you know, I know that you. Uh, the end of it that you had gotten into obviously probably wasn't exactly, you know, where the funds are going. But have you done further research in regard to this? Because I know also that, you know, because of you and your whistleblowing, you came out with a, uh, a state uh, a law for ongoing, for annual education for everybody in the state, you know, every staff member. So, which is good. Yes, so, those funds, those funds have to come from somewhere. And it, and I think that is so well worth it because I feel that there's a lot of uh, education that that's missing, and also that I don't know how it is in California. You're actually underpaid. You know, you're taking on a position that is, you know, extremely dangerous. And I'm not sure how uh, how California pays. But did you? What is it that you found that was so compelling that you're co-workers were willing to do this well the thing is it was all about like i said early power and they, and they had the backing from the warden but after i testified we'll get to that after i had to find my own attorney uh because my own union turned their backs on me they wouldn't help me out the chapter president mm-hmm. looked at me and said you're officer vodka he turned his back and walked away from me so i had to go out get my own attorney well later on i had to testify in the senate hearings in the state capitol on the green wall, which hit the front page of the LA times in 2004 packed house in front of some senators for two hours. And then shortly after that, I had to go in hiding for six months off the grid. But after that, when I started, uh, uh, when I testified in the Senate hearings, there was laws being passed behind my case uh, to protect whistleblowers to come forward. There was actually training all staff members. Like you said, Tanya, all staff members who work for the department of corrections, I had to sit through an eight-hour training class, which costs a lot of money to put together in, in order to train these guys not to, uh, not to adhere to the code of silence or be a part of this green wall. So there was a lot of training. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the money, as far as private prisons, I don't know a lot about the private prisons because we were okay. state organizations, and, uh, and we had 36 okay. prisons in California, and we're the biggest uh, prison system in the world, probably in the nation. So, but I did change a lot of policies and procedures within the Department of Corrections on my case. Congratulations. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, what actually happened behind all this, DJ? Because, you know, you when something like this comes down, I mean, we see it in federal agencies and everything, the people at the top get to resign so they can keep all their benefits rather than being charged for crimes. And I do believe these things that happened are crimes. They were crimes against you. They were crimes against the system itself. 
and it's Frankie so, 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 the, the the constitutional amendments eight and fourteen. I mean, there's these things are, are there for a reason, but somehow, you know, the, uh, the the inmates are being told, no, once you're behind bars, you know, we own you no matter what, and that education isn't out there. And then if there's if there's actual uh, complaints, then there's retaliation, as we've attested to many times on Tuesday nights. Well, yeah, there's, um, you know, I mean, there's, uh, yeah, I've, I had a lot of stuff against me and, and, um, you know, uh, all the way up to the top, they wanted to point the fingers and, and the warden threw me under the bus and I wasn't gonna let that go. And, and I went, I went after him and I also went after the director of corrections. The warden kept a lot of this stuff hidden from his upper, uh, superiors in Sacramento. So, uh, he had eight boxes in his office and in the forward of the book, Ed Caden, he was a chief deputy warden. He was side by side with the warden. He kept that chief. He kept Ed Caden out of the loop. He didn't want him to know because Ed Caden is an honest man. I mean, he's a, he like I said, he's a, in my forward of my book. He backed me up, and uh, the yes. warden kept it from him. And, and uh, he just wanted wow. the power. He came from the old school, and, and uh, it, it, this it should not happen not in California. This funny? shouldn't happen in California. This shouldn't happen in Oklahoma. I mean, it takes a lot for a stand-up prison guard like myself. That well, my career was cut short because of this, and that's not the way I wanted to go. Can DJ, we, can we talk do you money? think that the prison got? God, damn. go ahead, Tanya. Whoa, 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 whoa! Go ahead, Marty. Let's Hello. return. Let's let's talk money. Let's talk money. I mean, power, money, contraband. Right, because. Uh, Tanya, Tanya, real quick, when you were mentioning about our salaries, correctional officers in California are going to blow your mind. They average about seventy-five to eighty thousand dollars a year without overtime, and all they need is a high, high school high school diploma. So we're the highest paid in the United States in California. We're the highest paid, and you know what? These prison guards didn't care what the money was. They knew they were doing criminal activity. So if they were going to be caught, I'm one hundred percent on prosecution. But it's up to the uh, the district, the district attorney in the county, if he wants to prosecute, or the FBI wants to come in and prosecute, uh, and they had, I had enough evidence for all this, but nobody wanted to pick it up. Okay, it's DJ, can I ask? Can I ask that this prison corporation of America has gotten really big, especially over the last ten years? Do you think it was better or worse before they got involved? From what I've seen across the country, expenses have risen. Uh, treatment of the prisoners has deteriorated under this privatized prison system. Did you see that in California, or is it the same, relatively the same? California, we started uh, the privatized prisons in California. Those guys aren't trained. Those officers that go in there are not trained uh, the proper way. They just hire them off the street. And give them a badge and uh, keys, and, and they go do their own. They're not trained like us. We're we're actually sworn wow. peace officers in the Department of Corrections. They do right. background checks on us. They do everything. These private prisons, I don't think they do the background checks. They, anybody can get into those jobs, but their 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 wages are real low, real low. Yes. And they're and and, and they're, uh-huh. yeah, that's it's it's ridiculous. I mean, I think all private prisons in the United States need to be shut down because that's not it's not how it should be. You know, I mean. They, they, you guys, we need to be trained the right way and show respect to these convicts and inmates. You know, you give convicts and inmates respect, you're going to get it back. Well, and, well, you know, and, I, and I've been the thing is, the statistics. 
I've been oh looking at God. the statistics on prisons, and um, I found where they estimate that 70% of the people in prison are not guilty of the crime they were put there for or were guilty of something that did not warrant prison time. And it was all tied back to this privatized prison thing, the cutting of expenses. And they said that what they thought was happening, that people were simply being funneled into these prisons simply to fill the contract with the private private prison and uh, get them in there so they can keep those those beds full. Now, to me, if you've got, like I say, and I put this in the promo, it would be bad enough going there. But if you were in there, and you shouldn't have been in there, and you knew you shouldn't have been, and you're faced with the prison gangs on one side, and you're faced with the guard gangs on the other side, that's got to be a nightmare from hell. I just can't even imagine this. And I'm going to ask something else. Once this Green Wall gang formed, what was the response of the prison gangs to this? Well, the Green Wall formed uh, the prison gangs and the inmates on the yard were scared on these guys. When these guys came on the yard, six, seven, eight, ten deep, all these guys on the green wall, they'd walk on the yard, the whole yard got quiet because they knew these guys were up to no good. And they watched them walk all the way across the yard and wherever they went. So uh, they knew these guys were going to set up some inmate for more time. So the, the gang, the prison uh, gangs and all that basically feared them because who, who's the courts going to believe, guys? They're going to believe a corrupt yeah. officer over a convict or inmate. And that's, that's the mentality, how these guys acted. As far as, uh, you know, the private wow. prisons and stuff like that, um, they might have these prison guard gangs in those, those prisons, but I don't know. I can't, I, I can't tell exactly if they do or not. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I just found it curious that you could have this same mindset running both sides of the aisle there, so to speak, and uh, what the prison gang's response to that would be. And I, but I guess if you've got somebody up in the guard tower with a gun that can blow your head off, I imagine you'd sit still and be quiet. Um, it, this is just, oh, yeah. I can't believe this one. And what was the warden's response to this when he found out this was going on, DJ? What did the, what did he say? Did, did, what tell, did he think? He was behind the whole ordeal. He was, a, he was the one who initiated the Green Wall. He set up the Green Wall gang. He told these guys, oh my you know, God. You, you're, you're my gang. You're, the warden at the prison who did me wrong, which is all in the book, um, uh-huh. he, did it, he did it wrong. He, he, he was the kingpin. He was the king. He, he was the, the big pawn on the table. He, he, everything went through him. I mean, he, he, if anybody so got I'm, in the I'm just going to interrupt for a second, uh, Marty and, and DJ. So it's uh, typically we start at uh, 7.30 Central Time at 7.30 so right now we are also for the listeners that are coming on to eighty nine point nine KLRB FM Lighthouse Christian Radio out of Oklahoma. Uh, this is just to let you know that we are both Marty Oakley, TS Radio Network, the producer, and uh, uh, and a host of several shows. We are hosting tonight together, and we are uh, speaking with the author of the book, The Green Wall, uh, D.J. Botica, The Green Wall, A Prisoner Guard Struggle to Expose the Code of Silence in the Largest Prison System in the United States. And so whistle blew on people that he worked with as they all turned their back on him for uh, doing what he uh, 
what was his duty to do and what he had been doing for years before um, and probably uh, doing doing his job, very capable, uh, well-respected, honored, and went up the ladder uh, quickly. He also served our country. So we're speaking with DJ Vodka, who is um, who had to go into hiding for six months. Uh, he uh, he went through the the uh, all the whistleblower protections, and he he finally won his case and changed to state laws in California, some of the most dangerous dangerous uh, prisons in the country, and if not the world, you know, with with yeah, the the numbers, the masses. Okay. So that's just to update uh, our friends out there that are just now tuning in to 89.9 FM KLRB. Go on with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tanya, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I am the biggest whistleblower in the Department of Corrections in California's history. And no, nobody's ever challenged the Department of Corrections. They even wrote a book against the Department of Corrections, what happened to me. And, you know, the thing, I've, I've, the book's been out for about 10 years, and nobody's challenged me. I mean, Everything in the book, I have all the evidence to support everything in that book. You know, all the evidence, factual evidence, and you guys, Tanya and Marty, that read it, you know. I mean, I'm I'm big on prison reform, guys. I I want things to change in the United States. I want things to change in in California because it it all starts behind the walls. We have to get rid of these rogue prison guards who treat these guys inhumane. I mean, it starts from the top. It starts from the top. Does it does? I was just talking with somebody about that today. As a matter of fact, it, it does start from the top, and if if there is no oversight, then it trickles down. It's giving permission for this abuse to to happen. And you know, I I just want to ask you because we have had a couple uh, that have come on the show as ex uh, corrections officers, uh, and as well as we've heard a lot from uh, victims of corrections officers, and we also hear about. Some of the good guys, too, all right? But mostly people know the show is about exposing, reforming, and sanctioning and reform. So what do you have to say to those others out there now that are working in the system? Because we had somebody on that he thought he was whistleblowing. He quit his job, okay? And then he came out with YouTube videos and whatnot. He got arrested. He got beat the you know what out of we're on a christian station so we have to be careful he got beat the you know what out of and and by the same people that he used to work with when he was a ceo put in jail because he had cameras illegally in there whereas if he had the whistleblowers protection it would have been a different story right but that being said he he came out unserved uh you know served time or whatever and and on parole for five years but what do you have to say because he was exposing those that are doing illegal things. So for those that are still an employee and have to look at themselves in the mirror every day, if they still have a conscience, conscience, what do you have to say to those that might be listening right now, know what they're doing is wrong, um, and they're trying to, you know, and yet they're trying to support their families. And then what do you do to those that, you know, have crossed the line and do more than just turn their backs? What do you have to say? What's well, I message? know what I have. My message is, you know, when I, I got up every morning and, uh, uh, you know, got in the shower, shaved, and everything like that, I put my uniform on, I laced up my boots, I stood in front of the mirror, and I looked at myself every day in the mirror I, when I went to work. I said, I'm going to go do the right thing, and I'm going to come home 
uh, alive. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be one of those uh, guys that you know, commit criminal activity because I don't want that playing on my mind. You know, I mean, you have, like you said, you have a family to support. You go do your job. You, I took an oath. I took an oath mm-hmm. when I took an oath in the academy to protect and serve. I did not take an oath to adhere to the code of silence. It's all mm-hmm. about the code of silence. You know, and, and mm-hmm. you, you, uh, this is a great career. Law enforcement is a great career, but you don't have to, you know, mm-hmm. you have, you, you've got to realize, you know, you just, you just got to do the right thing, you know. And uh, as far as me being a whistleblower, I, I, I protected myself. I kept all my documents, everything I write, I always kept documents, copies of it. You know, and, and my own lawyer said, I've never, never had a client as good as you are, DJ. You, you kept everything. I mean, our, we, yeah. we deposed 24 people. They only deposed two. They had the state attorney general's office. Two lawyers on their state attorney had to quit because they didn't want to take on the case because they knew the Department of Corrections was trying to cover up wrongdoing by these guys at the Green Wall. And uh, mm-hmm. you know what? This, this is where it's hard, guys. This is where I cry, okay? <laughs> my, my father... Before he died, uh, his last words were to me, you write this book, son. You write this book. You get this out to the public. You get this out to people who who did you wrong. And I did. He was my influence that made me write this book. And that's why I wrote this book. And that was his last words to me before he died. And uh, and I don't want to make changes. That's all right. DJ, let me ask you. Go ahead, Tanya. Just go ahead. No, no. No, no, no. You go, Marty. <coughs> go ahead, guys. I'm, I, it's just, I miss my dad every day. I miss my mom every day. And I, I thought I had friends in the Department of Corrections. I had one friend, Joe Renault. So, you know, when you're a whistleblower, people turn their back. Not you were friends. They're going to turn against you. They're not going to want anything to do with you. And uh, I live my life every day, you know, thanking God I, I, I'm alive. So. I have a friend who was recently murdered, uh, a whistleblower, who trying to help somebody, by somebody who was trying to help. <coughs> and, uh, and it is, there are dangers. There are risks to it. And I, I just saw your video from September 2020, I believe it was, where you're being interviewed at an unrevealed place. Now, I don't know if it was only recently posted again in September 2020, but that's the date I saw on it. And uh, you were were sharing that, you know, you wear a bulletproof vest everywhere you go. And whoever was interviewing said, can you show me? And you did. You opened your shirt. Um, How are things uh, now? The BBC out of England. My book has been all over the world, guys. I mean, I just lately, I've had podcast interviews from the UK, Australia, Philippines, all over the United States, and I'm so glad Marty and Tanya, you brought me on your show because um, I do I do have the bulletproof vest. I have it next to me. I also have my weapon next to me at all times. Um, I don't go to California very much. I live up in the high country in the Midwest, and uh, uh, I'm isolated. And, all I have to do, guys, is pick up the phone if I think I'm being followed, harassed, and I've got a direct link into the FBI and, uh, and other people that would, will be at my my home or residence within uh, within minutes. That's good. So you, this is how you live your life. 
I live my life uh, watching over my back. You know, I do live my life. Uh, I watch my surroundings. And uh, uh, it's just, uh, you know, especially when you get told, like, I can't believe you're still alive by a government employees or, you know, watch your back, you know, because it wasn't the convicts and inmates that didn't hate me. They loved me. It's my own staff. I turned against my own staff and uh, got some people terminated and fired and forced to resign. You there? Marty, I'm being quiet, so this is your turn. <laughs> Marty, she might have gone out to smoke a cigarette. She might be frustrated. <laughs> but, yeah, Tanya, you know, Tanya, Oklahoma, I mean, it's not fair for the convicts or inmates in Oklahoma to be treated by prison guards and prison staff in an inhumane way, and they need to stand up. They need to contact uh, representatives on the outside. Family members need to, you know, quit calling the warden. Because, you know, it could call the institution. They're not going to do anything. Call the higher-ups. Call the inspector general. Call the attorney general's office in Oklahoma. Well, Write unfortunately, that won't I mean, do that. I tell them to do that, CJ. I tell them to do that. I tell them to put it in writing, actually, so you're crossing your I's and dotting your T's. Unfortunately, in Oklahoma, you're not finding that kind of support. Okay, you're really not. So, you know, in the meantime, the gathering of affidavits is taking place. The gathering of evidence, videos, uh, testimony, um, you know, uh, photographs, well, these things the, the, the thing are, is, are Tanya, the other, the other thing is, Tanya, and the Department of Corrections hates media attention. If you can get the media involved in it, they hate it. And then that's when it brings well, up just, uh, yeah. media. You, you, you know what the media, you know what the Department of Corrections has done to rebut what um, we've come yeah. forward with is they come out with these new commercials, you know, with a bright, shiny, orange-suited inmate, you know, pushing a cart, smiling as if he's got, you know, um, the free reign to uh, to Newman Marcus, uh, you know, push, saying, I'm having a good life and rehabilitation and all kinds of great food. I mean, no kidding. This is the joke that they have put out there several times because we have ruffled the feathers um, was I was able to get a pause. Me and a couple of others were able to get a pause on a new GPS system that was supposed to come out October 1st. And supposedly, supposedly now um, it will January 1st. So we have issues here going on. So there's been some, um, you know, I've been able to get some help uh, in, in some arenas and some pauses in some arenas. Uh, but those at the very highest levels so far um, have yet to take on the reform, uh, not even the reform, but the, the upholding of the the inmates' constitutional rights. Uh, seriously. I even have, have, uh, have on recording a, a grand jury investigator of the, at the attorney general's office. Maybe he didn't realize he was being recorded, but I have every right to, just saying – you know what? Everybody knows this is how it is, and it's just the way it is. And, you know, if I could change it, I would. But, you know, nobody changes it. Nobody's going to do anything about it. And I probably have a good 40-minute conversation yet to be released, other than the fact that I'm willing to talk about it right now because we're putting together a nice little package. Um, but so you guys, what is, about senators? Do you have senators in the state of Oklahoma? Uh, yep, here yet? yep, and senators that say they're willing to listen. And I'm yet to not to lock them down to a date. So, uh, but the more shows I'm doing, the more I've got uh, 
you know, members of Congress and senators that you can t- see come up and they show up as, as if they're looking at you. You know, when you're on Facebook, all of a sudden someone's, you know, oh, you might know this person, and I'm getting some friend requests and I'm taking them. And then anytime I see somebody they're not friend requesting, I'll friend request them. And, and, uh, and they're taking them. So my point is I'm really trying to build allies. You know, like, even if they know what's going on is wrong and they've been resisting it, guess what? Are you going to be a hero or are you going to be a part of the problem? Because this is too in everybody else's face to keep ignoring it. Yep. And you know what? I mean, it's just, it's just tough to get somebody to, you know, I had to, I had to do it all by myself with one attorney. One attorney represented me against the whole Department of Corrections and believed in my story. And, and then a couple senators, uh, that were in the book, Senator Romero and Jackie Spear, they, they believed in my story and they wanted to hear it because they were doing government oversight. Oversight committees are powerful, and they formed the Government Oversight Committee against the Department of Corrections. And uh, they you had the outside have people the coming in. Fox guarding the house, and that's all that no. there is. You have to have yeah. the outsiders You're like the Frank Serpico the into the mob. Yeah. That's what the, uh, they, the, say. In, they say. They say my book is like the Serpico in there. I'm yeah, sorry. They say my book is compared. To, yeah, they say my book's compared to Serpico. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't talk about that without reading it. Yeah, I'm just Lawless chaos. Lawless chaos. Yep. And prison reform in the country is huge, you know. And and you know, I'm, I people say, DJ, you're, this is the most rarest book. I can't. There's no books out there. Nowhere in the United States ever what you expose in the Department of Corrections in California. I mean, we can't. You're not going to find officers talking about behind the walls if they're still working. They'll be terminated on the spot. They're not. They're not going to talk about what happens behind the walls because they got to deal with their peers all the time. So, At best, they'll be terminated. Uh, we have people that have talked mm-hmm. to me that you know they they some of them as I as I've mentioned are coming out you know with their names, but there are some that you know tried to stand up and they ultimately were bullied and they and they quit. And they are still being held in their place, DJ. They're still being in, held in their place by being bullied, by being threatened, and are afraid to come forward. And they're not whistleblower yeah. status anymore. I mean, it doesn't mean that they can't come forward, but it's, they yeah. are scared. And, and in Oklahoma, you don't get paid well at all. I mean, you might, as yeah. well, you might as well be serving burgers. And I'm not trying to put that down. Working is working, but I'm just saying you don't get paid well at all. So that's another, you, you know, the contraband that's coming in left and right. Again, uh, you know, conversation with a uh, with a COO of Oklahoma Department of Corrections. You know, kept on pushing off the fact that listen, the reason why most of this contraband comes in is is because of the corrections officers. What are you going to say? What are you going to do about that? He kept on putting that off. Kept on putting that off. So, but that's yeah, that's what con- what, you didn't con- have that there. Terms. It sounds like we had we had dirty staff bringing in contraband and drugs and cell phones in the prison system, and eventually they were caught and they were terminated, and some of them were prosecuted uh, behind it. So, but mine mine was overall huge because right now the green wall is still active in California. Every a lot of prisons in California, and these guys are harming ADA inmates, inmates that are in. Uh, ha- uh, handicap or walk walkers wheelchairs they're abusing these inmates and uh, uh, there was a law firm out of the bay area not too long ago took on that case and won and a, a judge signed an order said all officers will wear body cameras at that prison and uh and they have to start wearing 
because the officers, when I was there, we never had body cameras on. The cameras were up in the buildings, but I think the Department of Corrections in, in all over the United States, officers need to wear body cameras. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. They, yeah, they have to. I mean, why not? This I mean, is, this has been, this is a huge thing of mine is because we keep hearing that, oh, well, they take you where they know that there's no cameras. Correct. That is correct. That's an, a correctional officer mentality. They're going to take an, uh, an inmate or whatever, two officers, three officers, they're going to take an inmate into a closet where there's no cameras, and they're going to do what they want to do to that convict or inmate. And uh, nobody's going to say anything. But, but the inmates are not going to tell because the other inmates think he's a rat or a snitch, you know. And that's what they do. Right. They, and that's the mentality of these officers that are doing wrongdoing and, and using their badges and, and the color of authority. The color of authority is huge with color the federal government. Yep. That's what they the color of law, color of authority, they can prosecute you behind that. So, so I mean, you know, don't you think that whatever they're sentenced for, and, and you can only hope that they're guilty when they're sentenced for that, because we do know there's a lot, an awful lot of over-sentencing and fear-mongering and into plea deals, where the sentence is even more so, you know, as we've proven time and time again, than they should have been charged with to begin with. You know, unfortunately, not all our attorneys are doing their right job. And they're suggesting, yeah, go ahead with that. Plea uh, uh, deal, and I'll come and get you out later. Um, and so then they have this, you know, annuity coming in every every few years when they're up for pardon and parole board, right? You, you know, but but don't you think that these people that are behind the bars, that their job, right, it, it, what they're supposed to do when they're in there, if they're being released, right, is they're supposed to serve their time. They're supposed to do everything to better themselves and make themselves ready so that they can come out and be a productive member of society. It does not. So that's their, but their prison sentence is their prison sentence, and and it shouldn't not be toppled over, uh, and and uh, and perverted by the mental and physical abuse, by the deprivation of humane conditions, and eating maggots for meals, and at that still not enough calories. Yeah, that's uh, like I said. Somebody has to come in and. and, and and, and do an oversight, some oversight committee or somebody uh, higher than the Department of Corrections that is not affiliated with the Department of Corrections. They need to come in there and see the inhumane, uh, how these guys have been treated and what they're going through and, and interview these guys and get to the bottom of it. Because, uh, you know, that, like I said, public offenders and they're on the streets, they're just uh, it's, it's just warm bodies on warm beds, you know, and they just run them through like cattle, you know, and instead of taking their time and, looking at their case and, and seeing what, you know, if we can get this guy off or actually if he did it or didn't do it. But some of these uh, public defenders, it's all about money. I mean, they want to get paid and they're just moving them so quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, can I say something here? Um, I was wondering, DJ, when you were going through all of this and when you testified in front of the Senate committee and so on, there were whistleblower laws in place at that time. Were they of any use to you at all? I mean, was there any protection there? Um, anybody standing up for you? Nope, nope. There was uh, nobody. Nobody would stand up and help me. My own, my, my own union that I pay chapter dues for 16 years turned their back on me. I, I asked for help through the union and helped me get out of this and all that. And they, the chapter president looked right at me and said. Oh, you're Officer Vodka. We've been advised not to talk to you, and you walked away from me. But that's like putting a knife oh my in God. my heart, you know. Yeah, he turned his back yeah. on me, and that's on that's on te- yeah. 
that's in the book and short testimony and on the record. And uh, yeah, no, no, nobody, nobody stood by my side except for my attorney, Lanny Tron, who to this day still represents uh, convicts and inmates and is willing to listen to anybody who he practices all over the United States. The guy is good. He knows what uh-huh. he's doing. He's a he's a Harvard Law uh, degree. He's been practicing for thirty years. His wife's an attorney. They go after they go after the wrongdoing. You know, um, they won a couple cases in California on, on officers coming forward and, and you know, and, but he's willing to reach out to anybody who wants to listen to him. He'll listen to anybody if he if he warrants there's a case there. He'll he'll fight fight it all the way to the end. And uh, he was the only one besides Joe Renoso. There was only two that stood by my side. And my parents did before wow. they passed away. So they never got the right. my mom and dad never well, got to see the book. They never got to see the book when finalized written. But they knew what my dad when he wow. died, you know, and he uh, he told me to write that book and I, I proved it for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you too, when you were in the Senate committee hearings, I noted in the book that you, you had commentary about different people who were being deposed and things they had to say and, and about specific individuals were lying, were they ever held accountable for that? Did anybody ever go after them for basically perjuring themselves in these hearings and lying? Uh, I could tell by the way the book was written, you were angered by this and, and reasonably so. And it seemed to have no effect on the outcome. And I think the, the senators listening knew these people were lying. And it, I just don't understand. Uh, I, I don't understand how this could happen to begin with, but yet on the other hand, I do, because you look at local police that they've militarized and basically given a carte blanche to do whatever you want, and they have in many cases become threats to their community. They're no longer peace officers. They're law enforcement and a whole different mindset. So I could see how in a, in a closed population like this, and you're out of public view, and how this could happen, but how it was allowed to happen and to continue really bothers me, and why your warden would have gone along with as much help, less help set it up. This just doesn't make sense to me at all. Well, they, what was wrong with yeah, them? Yeah, because I... In my book, there's a lot yeah. of perjury going on and, and all that. And, uh, yes. And then and they, they uh, at the Senate hearings, the director of corrections said, oh, we're going to look into this and we're going to get to the bottom of this. They were just giving lip service. They didn't They didn't go farther after these guys. I mean, they, they could have went after all of them and got their jobs terminated for lying under oath. Uh, right. I, ta- I, I, I settled my case two weeks before trial because I buried my father. I had to come out of hiding to bury my dad. And then I had to care, take right. care of my mom. She wasn't doing very well either. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just I couldn't go through a trial because uh, yeah. all the information. And then, and, and then the thing is, guys, they they tried to put a gag order on me and say we don't you can't write a book. You can't write a book. And my lawyer said he's going to write a book. If he wants to write a book, yeah. he'll write a book in his lifetime. And they tried to put a gag order on me, and the, the judge says you're not going to put a gag order on Officer Bonica. He has every right to do what he wants to do. And uh, they weren't. They knew one day there was going to be a book coming out, and sure enough, four yeah. and three years later, I published the book. And you know what? The book. Good for you. The book's been banned. The book's been banned. You can't get it in the Department of Corrections. The convicts and inmates are not allowed to have my book in the prison. Oh. oh. No, they don't make wow. it clear what their rights are. They, uh, they, they try as you know, brought up earlier. They don't make it clear. They 
would just assume that everybody thinks that they don't have rights, right, Marty? They they would just assume yeah. that they that 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 they don't have the rights. That um, and, and there are more and more advocates that are out there, and the loved ones that are speaking up, and the ones behind the bars. You you know they have contraband, even though some do have it for criminal activities. You know the lifers that are still trying to you know maintain power and and still have their little dealings going on. But a lot of a lot of people have their contraband, and I'm contacted regularly by them, um, you, you know, their cell phones, because they can't come out with a complaint because they will be retaliated against. They're not allowed to get a robbery. They're not allowed yeah. to, you know what I mean? So they're stuck unless they, you know, it's like they've got nothing to lose. Go, You know, if they got caught. <laughs> You know, know, uh, DJ, there there was another lady in Arizona, um, much like you in character. Uh, She ended up dead. And she was with um, the Arizona Correctional Peace Officers Association. And her name was Gabriela Contreras. And she was a whistleblower. And I'm hoping to have someone from Arizona on here hit right after the first of the year, but I want to read a brief letter that was written for her after her death from the association. And it says, Edmund Burke once wrote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Perhaps it would have been better if he had said humans in lieu of men, because today we are celebrating a courageous human that so happened to be embodied in the form of a woman. A woman that embodied the very spirit of the message delivered by Edmund Burke over 200 years ago. That woman was Gabriella Contreras, lovingly known as Gabby by her family and friends. And as we honor her here today, let it be known that she honored us as well with her bravery by standing up against injustice and abuse, thus not allowing evil to triumph on behalf of Gabby, her family, her friends, and the Arizona Correctional Peace Officers Association and myself, we are happy, we happily and joyously accept this acknowledgement here today in hopes that more courageous humans come forward and stand strong and proud in places where evil once stood. And that was written by Carlos Garcia, the executive director of the Arizona Correctional Peace Officers Association. And as, as much as I know about the story at this point, DJ, she very much it, it did what you did, and she paid for it with her life. Uh, the retaliation yes, uh, is I, real, and, and it's it dangerous. Go ahead. It is real. It is real because uh, she was a sergeant. She was a correctional sergeant, and and she uh, took it to higher up authorities. And like I said, they point the fingers. They don't want to correct the wrongdoing. It's all about money. They're going to have to fix stores and all that. And where are we going to get the money from? Yeah. Where's the media? So she she took a lot of heat from her staff. And uh, from what I understand, she committed suicide. But they're looking into that and see if it was real suicide or, or if it was foul play. So, and then yeah. just not about a month ago, uh, I read a thing uh, out in Arizona. I always follow this stuff all over the states. And not too long ago, there was a uh, two uh, lieutenant and uh, another uh, officer or sergeant come forward, and uh, they were whistleblowers in Arizona too. So, you know, people are. Uh, I hope these guys are standing up and you know and, and you, you let their voices be heard. You know, but uh, yeah. I never, well, thought, I never thought I never thought about suicide, and, you know. And, yeah. Well, and I know the stress for senators. What's that? Go ahead, Marty. Let me let me tell I'm you sorry. about a story real quick. My let me tell you a quick story. My my lawyer 
Lanny Tron took a case on about five years ago. There was an officer at High Desert State Prison. You can actually Google it. It's, it's in the Rolling Stone magazine, did a big article on it. Scott Jones, if you can remember that, Scott Jones, Rolling Stone magazine. Anyways, he took on the case. He took on uh, what happened. It was this officer saw a wrongdoing at a state prison in California, just like what I did. And he reported to his superiors. His superiors turned their back on him. Other officers were pepper spraying him, doing stupid things with him. He had enough. He came home. He kissed his wife, kissed his little boy, got up the next morning and told his wife, I'll see you later on, honey. I'll, I'll have to work today. She goes, be safe, honey. You know what he did? He went up to the mountains and he blew his head off. He committed suicide because oh, he couldn't handle the, the pressure anymore. My lawyer represented the widow against the Department of Corrections, and he won. He won a, a lawsuit for oh, her God. and the Department oh, of Corrections. So, my, you know, like I said, you know, officers put pressure on other officers to do these kind of things, you know. And, and uh, I was tough enough. I, didn't, I don't ever think about suicide. I want to live as long as I can because I have a beautiful little Good. boy and I have a beautiful wife. Uh, but, you know, and, and my my little boy witnessed uh, me being harassed and when I took him to a fair. It's in the book, and he was five or six yes. years old at the time. And, and I uh, I was walking him out, and I was threatened by a supervisor, who ran up on my face and told me to drop the case, drop the case. And my little five year old boy witnessed that. And you know what? A couple of years ago, he told me, hey, "Dad, I remember that happened at a fair. Is everything okay with you now?" And then I handed him oh, my book, geez. and my son my son started crying right there in the stop. And I said, son, read it and call wow. me. He read it. It took him two days to read it. And he called me. He goes, dad, you're my hero. <laughs> I'm sure you How are. Did that feel? I'm sure you are. That's the example that you want to be. Never, never, ever give up. That's the example that you want to be. And, you know, I, I, I mean, look, we've got, it, it's scary. You know, and you mentioned, you mentioned the, you know, senator. Okay. You're speaking to legislator. And we have. You know, there are still people out there, but, you know, you I can just think you know of what, one you, name right now, and her guys, name is Nancy you know Schaefer. Hey, you know what? You guys tell that senator to call me. You tell a congresswoman or a senator, call me. Listen to my story. Listen for well, me. And I'm looking peace forward to speaking more forward. to you and your attorney, by the way, because we've got yeah. plenty. To, I'm sure, you know, this is great feel because free, we've hey, been gathering. You guys, you guys feel free to share my name with your senators, your wardens your representative for the Oklahoma. You know what? Because you know what? We need to stop this. We need to oh, stop yeah. this. Not stopping okay. until it is stopped. Yeah. Not, yeah. not stopping yeah. until it is stopped. You, you know, and, and you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, these the senators, too, they're cowering and going along with it. And all of them. Not all of them, necessarily. I'm not going to give up on them all quite yet. Okay, but but if you look up the name Nancy Schaefer, okay, this is a woman who uh, was uh, a senator, and she was uh, out there uh, to legislate and protect the most innocent people in this world, children, and she was exposing corruption. Now, to this day, it is still controversial as to whether she was murdered or whether it was suicide. Most people in this business, you know, on our end of things, right, whistleblowers, advocates and whatnot, do believe and know that it is it was likely uh, murder because of what she was coming forward with. And every year, you know, they have uh, rallies on her behalf. They have a lot of things on her behalf. And so, you know, you can't let – the more people that are out and speaking the, the, and uniting together, 
the more noise that is made, the harder it is for them to shut you up. And I find that when we have, like, a whistleblower on, all of a sudden more people will be empowered and talk. And and I know that you're going to do that. You're doing that right now. You know, because we've had other people on before, and then all of a sudden we start hearing from other people. I am sure that will happen, like, on steroids now that you're on with us. You're well, the so thing brave. is, guys, I, I want to say, I want to say one thing. You know, I, I'm on Twitter. I'm DJ Vodka on Twitter. I don't care. I, I, and everybody who follows me on Twitter and who believes in my story, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart because it means a lot to me when people reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook, you know, because uh, it really means a lot because they know how I feel about prison reform and criminal justice reform and, and, uh, I want to push my book. Like I said, my book you can buy on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com, and and uh, it's the most powerful. Lawyers in California are using my book as a reference and representing other inmates uh, that are suing the Department of Corrections against the Green Wall that have been used. So my book has been used as a reference in courts and everything like that as we speak. Well, sure, because you spoke under oath. Yeah, I took it under oath. And, uh, and uh, you know, like I said, I've never been challenged on it because everything in that book, from the last period to the comma, I've got evidence in that. But there's names in the book. There's I, I put everything in the yeah. book, you know. I mean, there's names, the warden's names, the evidence, the corrective action plan, the OIG. I had a real nice letter from the senior federal judge, Judge Henderson, who wrote a nice letter to me and followed my case. And he was appointed by the uh, uh, President Bush Sr. I mean, they all followed my case. And they, and they said – you put you you knew how to I never wrote a book. I'm not gonna write a second book, guys, I'll tell you that right now. That book was therapy for me. But uh I I won't write a second book. But people are saying my book is a movie. I mean this this good book can be a movie or a screenplay or whatever, but um I, if it is, it is. If it's not, I just wanna get the word out, guys. Right. Well I think it would make an excellent movie, a documentary style movie, because it is factual. And you do have all the evidence, and I think it would be an in-your-face. This is what's really happening. I, you know, families all across the country have people being sent to prison, and you have a part of the public that stands up and goes, "Well, that's where they belong." Maybe, maybe not. Uh, like I say, from the statistics I saw, seventy percent of the seventy percent should never have been there. They didn't commit the crime and or they committed a crime that did not deserve prison time. This is about money. This is about selling people into the prison system to make money and why we privatize prisons. I, I remember up in Minnesota when they first did it, DJ, they said, oh, it was going to save the state millions of dollars every year. It increased the state's cost by $26 million that all went to wow. this corrections corporation. Um Big lavish building hey, that guys, they would hey, build supposedly hey, for a prison. Yeah, yeah I don't go want ahead. to interrupt you guys, but I'm getting a signal by my wife that uh, she needs to see me, so um, I might okay. have to cut this short, guys. All right. Well, as I say, they built these big lavish buildings that were supposed to be prisons and said, oh, wait, this is too nice. We're going to use them for something else, and the state paid for them. This whole thing is a scam, but the idea that this is going on inside the prison by people who are collecting a paycheck to do something else, and in other words, to do a specific job, and they're as criminal as the people they're supposed to be guarding. This is yeah, it's wrong. This can't happen. Yeah, nope, it, is. It's, it's it, it can't happen. 
Yes, it is fraud in a major way. I am sorry, guys, but I have to get going. And I'd like to pick up with this again at a later time if you guys want to. But I just uh, sure. I get I'm getting a short of a look. I don't want to. I don't want to sleep on the couch tonight. <laughs> so hey, um, would you like to come on my regularly scheduled show on Tuesday night? Would you like to do this next Tuesday? Because it's how a lot of people contact me, as I'm sure Marty has. Um, to ask some additions, to ask some questions specifically to you. Would you like to yeah. do that? Let's, let's make it happen. Uh, same time, just send me a, a number where I call and uh, the time and all that. And uh, Marty has my uh, text number or email, and you can get it from her, uh, Tanya, and we'll go from there. So a week from Tuesday, let's make it happen. Thank you, all and right. thank your wife, please. Okay. Thanks, right. guys. DJ, and your parents are very proud on. of you. Your parents are very proud. Thank you guys. I appreciate that. All right. All right. Good night. Wow, Marty, huh? Yes. Yeah, I know when I read the book, I was just stunned. And when he was in those Senate hearings, um, I don't think the senators were the least bit impressed with the prison officials who testified. And you, like I say, his little annotations in there about their lying. Mm-hmm. You know, he's sitting there and this man's lying. And nobody was held accountable for that. He, you know, finally prevailed in federal court, and he won his case. And I shouldn't say he settled. Um, but I say he was going through a terrible time. His dad had just passed away. Um, I, I don't blame him for doing that. But he still is living a very guarded life. These people don't quit coming. Um, no, they're they gonna, don't. They're going to be after him for a long time. I don't think they'll ever quit, and he knows that. Uh, but this basically right. took this man's life apart, all for standing up and doing the right thing. And the question about whistleblower laws at that time, we have new laws now that are seldom enforced, um, seldom even invoked. They've got all sorts of little games that, that they play to sidestep them so that, you know, they don't work anyway. And um, uh, I, I just, He's between Obama the and FBI, uh, some good ones. Yes. They're helping them. You yes. know what I mean? Because you can't always count yes. on the FBI. You want to believe you can. No, you can't. But thank no. goodness, you, you know, they are doing right by him. You, you know, because yes. you don't always have that. I'm not trying to say anything, like, really awful about yes. the FBI. But, you, you, but you know, some, there are some that are awful in the FBI. I think we all do know that. <laughs> yes, they are. As in anything else. Yes. You know, so that's um, what I... Uh, I, I give him so much credit what, for being. Yeah, what what I'm really so bothers me underneath everything is is all of these federal agencies, and then like this this prison system that's now privatized. People keep talking about privatization. Always oh, save us money. Privatization occurs for one reason, so that that stakeholder they're talking about, the stakeholders. Mm-hmm. The big money donors to campaigns can make money. That's the only reason they are interested. Is there is the potential the last governor for windfall products? She was heavily vested. Her yeah. family was. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah. please. And then we had. Uh, there's a senator who was he was booted out, but um, there was uh, he's not in there anymore. He didn't get. He was uh, vested in. Oh goodness gracious! I'm trying to think what it was, but it had to do with some upkeep of of the prisons you know so numbers 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 you know it's it's 
we've got to tear down these conflicts of interest. So it's a breeding ground for the corruption that continues to occur. It's it's time to break down those walls, exactly. As and and you know well, what? Shame. It's a shame because it's still going on in California. He said, "It's still going yes, on. It's going on everywhere." And the thing is, yes. government is government, and you should not combine it with private businesses because their intent and government's intent supposedly are two different things. And or once you privatize it, it <laughs> you, know, yes. you shouldn't yeah. be able to invest in it because pe- people form their own corporations and, and, and uh, they, can, they can be investing in it and you wouldn't know that it's Mary Fallon that's investing in it. Right. You wouldn't know that it's you know, Attorney General Mike Hunter or now the current uh, Governor uh, Stitt, but they they can be investing under under an assumed name, you know, or another corporation, uh, you know, another body, and and so this is this is just it. It's like you've got to uh, this money thing. This money thing. I know yeah. he said that that there was it, this was not a money driven thing. It was a power thing. Uh, but I still believe there's there's money driven behind it. I, I still right. have to believe that there was there was well, money behind that's, it. That's the driver. If there, if there wasn't the potential for windfall profits, because the government does not stand up and say, "Wait a minute, the law says this," and you are prohibited from doing that, um, they they wouldn't be interested in getting into it at all. But they'll get right. into it with the promise that they can make all the money they can. And we won't say a word. Just keep contributing to our campaign. It's like when we um, we look at a lot of, like on guardianship, elder law attorneys that are dumping mm-hmm. tens of thousands of dollars into the campaign's chests of representatives and senators that we've talked to that we are hoping will bring out something worth reading on guardianship. And this just goes on all the time. There's too much money in it. They got privatized. Right. They're not so going to elect the, the guard- people that got them elected. Yeah, right, exactly. And the people, you know, you might give $1 or $5 or $100 that you can, but they can give 1000 10000 or more. So that's the people that they're courting. That's the people they want to keep. They don't care if you stay or you go. And But it's this money is the driver on everything. And But in both of these instances, whether it's guardianship or it's prisons, both of them being pretty much the same thing, if you ask me, we are yeah. buying and selling human beings. We are trafficking yeah. them for profit. And yeah. we're just a step away from going back to auctioning them off in the middle of town. Um, there's money to be we're made. They are CPS agencies, too. Yes. CPS. They, well, in Oklahoma, anyway, you... they get bonuses. They get bonuses mm-hmm. for taking children yeah. away from their from their families. Granted, some need to be taken away, or at least temporarily. You know, there are those situations, but there's been more things that have come forward that show that the child would be better off with the parents, and there have been some with the parents and the parents being guided and helped and whatnot. And then there's also what's what's come forward is where they're wrong, where they're being wrongfully charged. And and yes. seize the opportunity if somebody doesn't have money, you know, to right. claim that that bruise is abuse. Let's you know, and if it, it is reported by somebody who has to report, you know, and then 
CPS, you, you know, go crazy with that when yet there's no proof of well, it. The, and it was just a simple bruise like any other kid can get. The thing is, this is another tribunal setting. They call it family court, but it's basically another tribunal setting. It is not in the state or, you know, civil or criminal courts. So that that person from CPS can stand up in that tribunal and claim anything. They can make all sorts of charges. They never have to produce mm-hmm. any evidence for it. It is we said so, so it is so. And the judge never well, Martin, asked them case for any. There was a case that not what? that long ago, and I, I think I sent it your way also, in Texas, I think it was, where and I feel that this should be used as a precedent, even though I'm more of a big believer in constitutional law, okay, but you use this with constitutional law, where a CPS agency was actually held accountable, not allowed to be immune for their egregious corruption. See, an accident is right. one thing. Then you correct that if it's not too late. But when, uh, where um, the family won millions, millions. Yeah. So a judge found them not that CPS agency or agent, whoever it was. To yes, it was a a particular named person, but also who worked for CPS, who was mm-hmm. sued, and they. Again, this is what we've been talking about all along. If they're not immune, if you are corrupt, if you show patterns of corruption, if you do something that is malicious and malfeasant, and you, re- you know, you, it can't be an accident. If you know you did wrong, you see that you've done wrong, and you're not willing to make it better and make it right. So that, to me, is well, something that... Every attorney should jump on from a, any kind of, you know, whether it is, you know, a, a, a criminal lawyer, right? You know, defending their, mm-hmm. you know, defending their rights, uh, their their clients' rights. If they've had, uh, you know, if there's been injustice, denial of due process, go after the judge. Damn it, go at, darn it. Sorry, Stephen. Go after the prosecutor. Go after the public defender. Go after the investigator. You know, if they're doing this on purpose, because a lot of them get paid by the same people. They're in the same room. They're in the same diners. Mm -hmm. This is not a fluke, and they are not immune. And so you should jump all over that case. Jump all over. Well, the thing is, immunity applies only. Immunity applies only to the office. Immunity applies only to the office. It does not apply to the individual necessarily. You can still sue the individual civilly, but you can't sue the agency. But malfeasance is using a position of public trust to harm mm-hmm. the public. And that's what CPS Social Services does on a regular basis. And um, so it just – but these people do it. They keep hollering, I have immunity. I have immunity. No, you don't. Your agency no, you does. Don't. But the minute you stepped outside the law, you don't. And you are civilly responsible, or criminally even in some cases, responsible for what you did. And this thing of immunity, uh, the law is applied equally to everyone. It doesn't say anything about unless you work for this agency or you wear a black robe or somebody said you were special, you you get immunity. No, it applies to everyone. If I broke a law and you break the same law, we're both guilty, not just me. And uh, But this this whole thing... um, 
I don't know. The Biden's campaign has said that they are going to um, go after judicial reform. I don't see that happening, no matter who's in office. Um, I still contend that one of the biggest things that needs to happen in this country is we need to disbar the bar associations. Yes. We need to strike down these immunity doctrines because, no, you're not. You're supposed to be the expert on the law. So if you violate the law, we have to assume it was intentional because, after all, you said you were an expert. You got that black robe on. You're sitting up there on that throne. And level the playing field. And I think the other thing that needs to be done, when I think about this figure of 70% of the inmates across the country either didn't commit the crime or didn't commit a crime warranting prison time, this is the first indicator of trafficking. But I think the prosecutors in those cases should all be charged and they should have to do cumulative time for the people they put in prison who shouldn't have been there. Um, the more that comes out about these fabricated cases and fabricating evidence and plea deals. And, you know, I said this other night, if <laughs> you committed a crime and they say, oh, you're going to get 25 years to life. But if you could admit to this other crime over here, maybe that you didn't have anything to do with, I'll tell you what, we'll cut you a deal. You can only do three years. Excuse me? The law no, means the nothing. Can, then they can switch it out on them. And then guess what? They can no longer appeal. They can no longer yeah. appeal if if it's a blind plea, and this is what's yeah. happening. It, it is, it is, bam, it's a pattern. It's this pattern. It's like, okay, you did that, we did that, you did that, we did that. We have heard mm-hmm. from people. Or the that, other one that uh, just makes me sick of my stomach is a couple days a week. It's called, and, they, and that's the judge, called, that's the prosecutor, that's the public defender. They already know what's going to happen when they go into court. They already yeah. know. But it's pre-planned. But the the thing that thing that bugs me is the Alfred pleas, and that is you plead yes. guilty to something although you don't admit your guilt. Basically, we fabricated a case against you, and unless you want to spend the next two lifetimes in prison, you plead guilty but don't admit your guilt. Now I don't That's know Perry in Lott. what you universe Perry Lott on he had yes. an Alfred plea. Yeah, where this makes any kind of sense. But what it is is coercion, mm-hmm. and it's it's extortion, and it's duress, because what they're basically saying, yeah, we know we're lying, you know we're lying, but unless you say this, we're going to make the rest of your life a living hell. And they get away with it. And I, I just, it, it, this has to stop. At some point, it has to stop. We have so many people, and, we have more people in, in this country. On parole the rest of his life, unless... Yes. Even though he essentially was, you know, commuted and, and, you know, but because they have nobody yeah. else to pin the crime on. Yeah. Unless the governor yeah. pardons him or they find who yeah. really committed that crime, he will forever mm-hmm. have to get permission to leave the state. He's forever under. In- and he has to pay for that. He has to pay for that parole. He has to pay for that yeah. parole. He has to pay every time he visits that probation officer. It's a game system. I'll tell you, it is. It is a system of wrenching money and people's lives away from them. And like yes, I say, we have more people in prison in this country than any other three supposedly civilized countries put together in the world. And we are sending yes. more people there every day. And we are using them for labor, forced labor. 
We are using them, we're leasing them out to corporations to do all kinds of work, including computer banks and phone answering and God knows what else. Uh, And hard People are getting penny. Yes, and hard labor. And um, uh, one of the things I had talked to DJ about was a case I knew about personally. And the young man was sent to prison and they moved him to a work camp where they found out he could run heavy equipment. They farmed him out seven days a week, sun up to sundown, running heavy equipment for the state. And somebody filed a fraudulent W two and signed his a dollar a day. Yeah, no, he made about twenty five cents. And um, but they filed a fraudulent W two depends on where you are with with the IRS. That's not a joke. That is not. That's not a joke, listeners. That's genuine. The state, the camp was collecting full wages as if he was out working a private job, which would have been equivalent at the time to about $75 an hour with wages and benefits. They're collecting full wages. When he got out, the IRS came after him and said, you owe this tax bill or you're going to jail. So I jumped in there, got a hold of the, finally after three days of incessant calling, got a hold of the camp commander, and I said, I'm going to give you 24 hours. This is fraud. You've committed a fraud. You filed a fraudulent W-2. You fraudulently signed this person's name to it, and then you collected money, and you didn't pay the taxes, and mm-hmm. you put those in your pocket. So you get this right, and I won't have you charged with fraud, and I had the name of someone from the IRS that I used And I said, and they'll be waiting to hear from you. And apparently he did contact them. And by noon the next day, all the back taxes were paid. But this goes Mm -hmm. on. They do this to these guys all the time. File these fraudulent W-2s, collect all their wages, don't pay the taxes. And then when the person gets out, here comes this massive tax bill to the threat of going back to jail again for unpaid taxes. And most of them don't know what to do. Most of them end up back in there. But uh, mm-hmm. they don't have a choice in this, and this is what I'm saying. That this goes back to Rumsfeld in 2003, changed the regulations for the DOD, and he said it applied also to the public, that prisoners could be used for forced labor. I think they call that slavery, don't they? And mm-hmm. um, But that's just me. Anyway, I've got I mean, about three I minutes here. I don't have a problem yeah. with, with, with inmates, with, you know, with them. Uh, working, doing productive things, building a skill, uh, becoming prepared uh, for being a productive member of society. But um, mm-hmm. but this has to be a two-way street, not a one-way street. And it it right. can't be um, it can't be in inhumane like you know sun up to sundown, you know yeah. uh, you know the the beatings kind of thing. Look, also I want to say about yeah. the Alfred plea is if somebody takes an Alfred plea, all right, they can never go after um, the state for compensation for a wrongful conviction. So right. that's kind right. of like a little deal being made too. So, um, so once yep. again, you know, trying to, uh, you know, cover their cover, the cover their bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, can something be done under duress? You know, I think these plea deals take place under duress. You could be faced with a death penalty when there actually is not enough circumstantial evidence to even get get them for, uh, you know, man one, you know, or man two, you know, or there's no direct link. I mean, you know, we have had, like, we have had people on the show 
you know, on the show that we're hearing, you know, it's the same county, the same prosecutors, the same, you know, where there's no driving evidence. We have some people that are plain as you would imagine uh, are innocent or, and or uh, that never got the correct plea that they were over sentenced, that they were overcharged. And then a jury does not know a lot of things that they should know. So the jury cares about what they're doing, but if the, if they are not directed properly, if they are not shown exculpatory evidence that would help lead to a different verdict, then that is denial of due process. Mm -hmm. And and this is what has to be changed. Okay. Um, We're down to about a minute and a half here. Everybody, I want to thank you for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow night with Dialysis Advocates on another whistleblower show. Uh, Our special guest is going to be Clem Johnson. He's an NBA championship star. Uh, He's joined the board, as I have, for Dialysis Advocates. And then Thursday night on Whistleblowers, Jackie Garrett will be coming on. She's with Whistleblowers of America. She has a new book out. We'll be discussing that. Friday night will be me me and Cause, and God knows what we're going to talk about. But anyway, as a reminder, these shows are brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit taking place every year in Washington, D.C. We'll see what happens this year with all this faked-up virus stuff. And for God's sake, take that stupid mask off. Um, anyway, Amen. everybody have a good evening. Thanks for being here, and we'll talk to you tomorrow night. Good night, everyone.